0: <laughs> yeah
1: Alright hey! Hello and welcome to Moves and Tea. I'm your host Zoe Zoe Jones and joining me of course is my co-host Miss Kim Lowe. Hello. Tonight we bring everything to a close for our final episode of Movies and Tea this season. Um, as our Quentin Tarantino season comes to a close with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino, and a film which he's frequently said he would be happy to have as his last film, which has been to the great furor of other directors, such as like Clint Eastwood, who feel that he's retiring too early, and other, many of the fans who obviously feel that they're not ready to say goodbye to the wonder kid of independent cinema. But... Here, um, Tarantino is to give us another alternate history lesson as we follow as, as what's essentially a changing of the guard in, in old-school Hollywood. Uh, the film itself taking place in 1969 um, following the Hollywood actor Rick Dalton and his stuntman Cliff. Uh, the pair, friends to, through their work and... F- is is a friendship that sort of evolved past uh, the work, where they now this have this sort of symbiotic relationship, where they both sort of de- depend on each other. Um, at the same time, Rick faces his star power essentially fading as he's worries about the upcoming pilot season, and he's now been gone from being this Hollywood leading man. To now playing like the heavies and the bad guys on TV shows, and he's weighing up his options but he's as he's looking at a career um, essentially making films in in Italy. At the same time, um, actress Sharon Tate and her husband Roman Polanski are new in town. Uh, Sharon Tate, obviously. Riding high on the wave of her new success much like her husband uh, Polanski who's just made Rosemary's baby and Meanwhile in the hills the Manson family are gathering you know, plotting their own hippie revolution it's a Interesting landscape that Tarantino certainly paints here, but at the same time a tribute to old Hollywood um, that we will attempt over the course of this episode to break down because it's a very in-depth uh, film and one with uh, a very sort of extended runtime but not one that uh, you really sort of feel i have to say but opening thoughts on this one kim i mean was this the first time you watching yourself
0: yes uh i mean it i guess tarantino movies i don't really catch right away anyways <laughs> so okay the last few have been um has been pretty much first time watches other than the hateful eight which was, you know, already, like, six years ago, so <laughs> it's not that recent. But, I mean, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, um, it's pretty fun. I think it's pretty entertaining overall. Uh, it's, I have a feeling that these alternate history ones are probably the most fun to watch out of Tarantino's filmography, for me, at least. Um, they're you know, you can see some characters, you know, which are part of, People that you know um, that exist in real life and then you have other more fictional characters added to the whole picture. And I think, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt really pair up really well, I feel.
1: Oh, definitely so. I mean, it's an absolute powerhouse casting, and Tantino se- himself said that when he was, like, casting the film, he was putting different pairs of actors together, but it was always DiCaprio and, and Pitt were, like, his his front runners. but at the same time, these are two actors who are booking, like, seven projects in advance, so for all the stars to sort of align and for them both to be free to film at the same time, it was just complete fate um and sort of written in the stars that this film was going to have those two as his leads and i think it's looking at the at at the alternatives i don't think it would have been as effective as we have for these two as we have two actors who are essentially very much similar to their their characters they're both actors who sort of came up as lots sort of like hip young things and found their place and at the same time have sort of uh now resigned to being sort of like older Hollywood stock. So you can see them obviously in many relations to their sort of character, even though unlike, you know, Rick and Cliff, they haven't sort of had to face that that point where they're sort of like stars fading, but certainly they've both had their uh, time in Hollywood and they've gone from being like, you know, the hot young things to uh, now obviously being more established names. And I think it, it was just sort of like perfect casting to have them and certainly, they're both actors who really sort of embody these roles. I mean, obviously, DiCaprio's sort of, like, the charming leading man. Cliff, who's obviously sort of, like, the more rough and ready everyman, which Pitt has really sort of grown into Has um, been He's always sort of been, like, that, that, that blue coat... The sort of uh, guy you can see yourself going for a beer with. I mean, especially once he, like, entered into that Fincher era of his career and started making, like movies that relies on him being more than a good looking guy shirtless which he was <laughs> which i remember a lot of like his early films it's sort of like oh it's all sort of like it's brad Thelma pitt and louise and, was the one yeah on louise it's all sort of like everyone wanted to talk about brad pitt in his in his jeans and it's sort of like this is what his action ability i mean even in like true i mean back then brad
0: pitt was a nobody right so yeah. you know you only realize he's in there when you watch it after he's become popular so uh, I, I, you know, I mean Brad Pitt's gone a long way. Um, you know he's gone through different movies and all kinds of different things. And I think that you know at this point it, this this I think that Cliff is a pretty pretty decent role. like you can just see like he doesn't really have a whole lot of lines, but then there's a lot of like encounters that he meets and stuff that really kind of livens the whole thing hmm. up.
1: Yes, um, certainly. One of those encounters got a lot of ire for the film <laughs> because uh, <laughs> certain owners of the, that property were a little upset at the treatment of uh, of that legacy. But when we obviously like uh, are introduced up with the film, when we were obviously introduced to reckon he's on like his TV show Bounty Law, which is like a fifties western. It's kind of like Gunsmoke or um, Bazanza. It's, um, as I say, it's funny because it reminded me a lot of um, Samuel Jackson's character in Hateful Eight. It's sort of like this idea of this bounty hunter who always brings in his bounties dead. And the amateurs try to bring him in alive, which I thought, it's like, that seems so familiar to the, like the, what the major was telling us in Hateful Eight. And I like as well the fact that when we look at this alternate, alternate history movie, I mean, here, as with, um, with like, Glorious Bastards. It's this idea of like, if we put these characters into history, what would how would things have turned out? So it's sort of like in this case, it's sort of like, what if we put this guy Rick Dalton and his neighborhoods with the Polanskys? Would that have changed how the the Manson murders had gone? Essentially, it's like what this is all building up to, and at the same time, turning sort of asking the question: It's sort of like you know, this guy Rick Dalton had been an actual movie star, like, what roles would he have been up for? What films would he have made um, in this period? And it's kind of fun, the fact that Terence has been so obsessed with this character, Rick Dalton, he's actually writing a book at the moment, it's sort of like a fictional filmography of, um, of the films Rick Dalton made, so he's like looking at things like Grizzly, and it's all sort of like, oh, if he was in Grizzly, which character would he have played? And he's, at the moment, as I say, he's w- working his way through and writing this whole fictional uh, history, which would be um a book that he's planning on releasing in the near future which i'm very excited to see just to see what films he's like recasting with rick dalton in um but we do get little little nods to that here as we get to see it's like oh what if rick dalton was in the great escape if he got like if he played the steve mcqueen role and i've it's something that i really like as well about the film is the fact that here tarantino's actually embracing modern technology a lot of his previous films he sort of Shun the modern technology. He's had a very sort of old school film making aesthetic. Everything's been very anti CGI. It's all been very sort of practical effects. And here he's obviously embracing new technology to like insert Leonardo DiCaprio into an episode of FBI, or to insert him <laughs> into The Great Escape. And it's really fun when you have these like scenes that you're so familiar with, but oh, here it says we're Frick Dalton in instead. Um, so I really like those those little uh, nods it has throughout. So.
0: Well, I mean, obviously I'm not like, I think that the film doesn't hit me as hard as a lot of people because a lot of old Hollywood stuff I don't really know a lot about.
1: Okay.
0: I've never really dived into that part. So a lot of these things like you're saying now, it makes sense now that um, those scenes were done and that they're supposed to be like, oh, you know, they inserted him into the roles yeah. of, you know, scenes that actually existed. Uh, but, you know, because but prior, to, like, prior to, to the recording, I, I didn't realize that. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, that, that is a really, that is a really interesting touch. Um, I mean, I'm not gonna lie, like, my, my knowledge of this was, like, I didn't, I didn't really do enough research, so, (laughs) as you're talking about the alternate history elements, I get a bit, I get, like, what they're trying to do, Yeah. but at the same time, I think, like, now I understand, because a lot of them I couldn't really piece together while I was watching, because to me, it just felt like three different elements so you have like the rick and cliff element where you know their friendship and their careers crumbling down and having to change direction and then you have like the polanski and tate situation where they're living next door and you know she's embracing this uh this fame that she's getting from the role that she got and uh and that sort of thing and and you know slowly we see her go into another phase of her life and then you go to the Manson, um, the hippies and stuff. And then <laughs> you have to look at that part again. And <laughs> and I can't, that's the thing, is that, like, I didn't, um, I really don't know too much about the murders. So I actually just quickly looked it up just now. Um, and it, it's, you know, now I, I understand how all this pieces together.
1: <laughs> that's right. I mean, no love it's just because I'm just a big nerd. So that's the no, reason no, but I I it. I think the thing so. is
0: that, like, Cause that was one of the questions I was thinking was that when we start the film, we have this part where, um, like in near the beginning, there's this random guy who goes up to the door and he rings the he he kind of shows up and he acts like he's lost and it almost sounds like he seems like he's like scouting the area like scouting yeah. the house and whatever and you see that and it's not you know and then when you go back to the end where the the big. Um, I guess the big uh, Manson type of hit gets there. Yeah. You you kind of realize <laughs> these idiots just went to the wrong house. <laughs> so <laughs> it all kind of ties together, and you're just like, is it is it like the the reason is that Dalton comes out and and bothers them right, and then they don't realize that there's a house next door? I guess.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I can't remember who um, Tarantino showed the the film to because he was talking about it on the WTF podcast with Mark Marin. And uh, you say he got to the finale and I, it, some old school Hollywood time was like showing it to and he was sort of like they got to that hippie hit and he was sort of like, they went and sure went and fucked with the wrong people, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> Which I was like that's pretty much a good analogy for the end, but I mean I have to say that I watched this when it came out in the cinema, I was like night one, at the cinema and I had to leave the cinema before the end so I missed the last 30 minutes so it was only on this viewing I've finally seen the last 30 minutes of this film um, and because it's so long, it's all so like I don't want to go to the cinema to sit for like another two hours for potentially another crisis at home, and I miss right. the thirty minutes again. And you kind <laughs> of like just like turn up to the theater and like win the last five minutes and go, "Oh, do you mind if I go and watch this last thirty minutes?" Because look at you, like some weirdo. And so like, it's like, who turns up for the last thirty minutes? Are you like doing a drug deal or something in here? It's like no. <laughs> No, I'm just a man with a crisis at home who missed the last 30 minutes the other night and trying to. <laughs> yeah, a... I
0: think that you know, I think that you know, the that's where it's so good because even though I didn't know, like I didn't understand the whole, like I didn't know about like the Manson murders yeah. and I didn't know the details of the whole thing, I was still able to pick that up at the end, and I thought that was such a. It was such a Tarantino thing to do, I think. Right, <laughs> to switch it around and be like, okay, well. <laughs> these idiots come by and they get asked to do it from someone else who scouted out the grounds which wasn't them
1: yes because that's, that's what um, people
0: usually do you know they ask someone else to scout out land and then they they go out and do the you know and then they go to the next door neighbor it's
1: um it's manson we obviously see at the start who yeah. goes up to tate's um tate's house and then obviously as he sends his his followers out to make this big statement well, he's over in San Francisco because this is the thing I, about the Manson murders. I didn't know until I watched the film myself and did the research. Because I always thought that Manson was involved in the Sharon Tate murders, but he wasn't. Um, it was his followers that carried it yeah. out, and Tex being sort of like the ringleader who we see here. So it's just as you said in Tarantino world, it's just like these idiots turn up at the wrong house, but it's just a real wrong house that they turn up at. <laughs> because um, then,
0: because then you know, like obviously we're jumping way ahead and we're talking with the end, but. I think that is so great because it does like this wrap around of something that he talked like, especially mm. Rick Dalton talks about at the beginning of the film. Um, about, you know, the weapon that he, you know, the weapon that, <laughs> that he uses at the end. And it, it's just so funny because, you know, after two and a half hours of this movie, honestly, I forgot about that conversation. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. So when that, when, when he pulls it out, you're just kind of like, what? Oh my goodness. Overkill. <laughs> and then, and then it's just great because you see Cliff um, I think that that's what's really great about Cliff's character is that Brad Pitt is really like you see this moment where throughout the film you really see his skills as a stuntman whether it's driving or climbing up the fence to fix the antenna or oh, yeah. you know, just doing all that stuff and then you and then at the end, even though he's on this like weird supposedly is supposed to take having this acid trip of some sort, he he's still able to do like this is still very instinct to him. So he's able to still defend himself and, and do all this stuff. Right.
1: Oh, definitely. And, so you know,
0: And giving the dog a purpose as well, because the dog's pretty much just eating dog food the whole time.
1: It's there's so there's so much great setup throughout the film right from the start, I mean, where he's meeting Abushino's casting director Marvin Schwartz and he's as you say, he's talking about like this this Rick Dalton movie marathon he had and he's sort of like, I put on the fourteen fists of Mikowski <laughs> And it's sort of like okay. da, 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 da. I love all that shooting stuff. And then with as you say, we get to see the the clip from it where he's there with the flamethrower and the eye patch and I was like it's sort of like, I, that's the movie I wouldn't see him make. It's like whenever Turn 2 gets a clip or something, it's sort of like, I really want to see the 14 fists of McCloskey now. And, um, and then it's like, he has a cutback, within a cutback, and he's sort of like, oh yeah, I was practicing with that flamethrower, and he's sort of like, does it have to be so hard? It's like, Rick, it's a flamethrower. <laughs> <laughs> um, and at that point I said, I was like, can we arrange for us to go and play with a flamethrower? It's sort of like... <laughs> we if someone if we can like arrange that for the uh the show for someone who's got like access to a flamethrower just to like go to a range of, not like in someone's backyard or anything we and we'll bring heather because i think her being an aliens fan i'm sure she'd want to play with flamethrower as well but it seemed really cool um <laughs> and i love the play as well with we to have a character like Martin schwartz played by pacino because Pacino. You know, overplays everything. So to it fits perfectly with this character, and have this little Pacino cam- uh, cameo as this casting director who wants, obviously, Rick to go and make uh, films in Italy, which is was sort of the course uh, for for a while. You would have like a lot of. Hollywood actors whose star was sort of fading, they would go over to Italy and they would make films so you would have people like Eastwood who weren't getting a lot of traction at the time and then he goes over and makes like the Spaghetti Westerns with um, Sergio Leone and comes back this huge star and you had uh, like um, Michael Douglas's father who I can't remember his his name but he went over and he did like a bunch of um, Italian crime movies as well so you'd have a lot of these like big name Hollywood actors who weren't getting sort of roles in, in Hollywood but they would go over to Italy and they would make films over there and they would be like this big attraction so it's real It's in many ways it's like Tarantino giving us this this history lesson of cinema and old the change of the guard in Hollywood and we see it as well with like the role that um, he gets when he's playing a villain on Lancer and they're talking about his costume and he's sort of like I don't want you to look like Rick Dalton. I want you to look like a like a hippie and have a Frank Zappa mustache and like like um, look. He has him with this outfit that he basically looks like uh, Dennis Hopper and Easy Rider. It's all like this Hell's Angel look, and you can see where Hollywood is moving away from like the clean cut cowboys of like Bounty Law of like the fifties and they're embracing the sort of like new Hollywood. So you're having like a the real sort of hippie element leaking in this sort of outlaw the hell's angels these are the sort of motifs that uh, you see coming in and when you see sharon tate go to watch herself in the wrecking crew and like the movie she sees beforehand which is like cc and company this like biker movie these are like the movies that hollywood is moving towards and it's obviously more reinforcing the idea of like how wreck is sort of like this previous generation of hollywood and he's sort of desperately trying to move with the times but at the same time not trying to become this sort of faded star who just like just takes up bit jobs to, like pushing um pushing the next guy through which is obviously what we get highlighted by the conversations with schwartz at the beginning where he's sort of like you know this is an old hollywood trick where they have like some guy who was hot and he'd be like now play the bad guy to push the new guy through so and this is why he's obviously pushing for him to go to isley which obviously he does later in the film and makes like spaghetti westerns um with this work he, he makes spaghetti westerns in this world with Cabucci, who was um like Sergio Leone he made very sort of like violent and dirty westerns he made the original Django for example uh with Franco Nero so it's fun that you have these elements of reality and they combine with the fiction and in Tarantino's world they they blend seamlessly because he's just doing, like, what if we made this simple little twist? Like, what if we put this character in, say, with Glorious Bastards? It's like, you know, what if the bastards were in Nazi Germany, and Hitler was going to the screening that they've decided to ambush up because all these things we know have happened in history, but it's sort of like, well, what if we put these guys in? How would this sort of change things? So, and I, I don't know, do you see this as sort of disrespectful, or just sort of like, kind of like a fun what-if? I think it's just a fun
0: what-if. Like, I don't I don't have those, like, you know, the thing is that I think movies should be entertainment unless it's a documentary. (laughs) (laughs) Documentaries are the only exception, okay? Yeah. But when you watch a movie, I feel like there should be some type of, because if it was just telling a story about old Hollywood, well, if we were doing exactly that, then why don't I just watch a documentary, but whereas if we do something like an alternate history, it's a fun little twist to you know what could have happened, uh, what could have changed the outcome of a situation, and that's like watching a sci-fi movie, you know, like when you watch a time travel sci-fi movie, you know, like butterfly effect. Oh, when you change one thing, what could change the next thing, right? And that's the same thing, you know. You don't you don't consider those movies disrespectful <laughs> because it's not based on something true. But why would you find this disrespectful? Like I don't I don't understand that, you know. Like it's a same concept with adaptations. Like why people get really pissed off about adaptations not being exactly like the source material. And I'm like, yeah, but the content you're reading or you're playing as a game doesn't translate the same way as how what how is how is exciting as a movie is, you know? Like everything has to be executed differently because the amount of energy and time and you know, your audience,
1: you know, what they want is going to be different. Yeah. Um, now, I want to just sort of move on a bit, to talk a bit about Margaret Robbie's portrayal of Sharon Tate. Margaret Robbie, I just have to, I personally think is just a phenomenal actress from this girl that was in Wolf of Wall Street. I think she's just gone so much past. I've just thought, oh, wow, she's just like, you know, some pretty girl that Scorsese got in. But she's just phenomenal every time I see her in whatever role she's taken on she's just phenomenal like Harley Quinn or in this case Mm -hmm. Sharon Tate I mean she just embodied this role of Sharon Tate I feel she was just like perfect from like the glasses and just the way that she carried herself and like being sort of like always at the center of, of um of the of the focus here and I think when you're watching it, it's not like you're watching Margot Robbie play Shantae. It's like you're watching Chanté. It's just such a good performance.
0: I like Margot Robbie a lot. I haven't watched a lot of the stuff that she's been in, but um, I think the first time I watched her was in probably in the big short.
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, where she was just talking about the stuff in a bathtub, yeah. <laughs> financial terms in a bathtub. <laughs> a bubble bath, yeah.
1: It made it made so um, much easier to follow all the <laughs> <laughs> the terms when you have those cutaways <laughs> as we said
0: um and then I think I saw her in suicide squad and yeah, I think that her she's such a flexible type of character, right I mean, um I also saw her goodbye Christopher Robin and I forgot about that oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and uh no, but I mean she's really fun and I think that. <laughs> I really like her whole get up in the cinema where she has her glasses on. yeah, I was I thought that was so nice like that was so, that like you for, a part of the movie like honestly some parts doesn't even look like her and you kind of forget I think <laughs> that she is margot Robbie and i and I, I do agree with that because there are some moments I'm watching this and i I, I forgot that you know this is. Margot Robbie doing the role, and she's acting out this character, which is so, um, I guess, interesting in a certain way because there's a certain. <laughs> I just thought I just thought the best scene that she had was when um, was when she went to this theater, and then she's so like content about the people around her yeah. reacting positively. I guess the way that she wants them to react to the role that she's doing or what's going on on the screen, and I thought that was so. That was so in like so fun to see because I wonder if actors do that you know like they sneak into a theater and then you know they just sit around and <laughs> maybe not prop their bare feet up on the <laughs>
1: on
0: the seat in front because that's kind of disgusting. Yeah, but... Tontu
1: really went into overdrive with the feet in this one, didn't he?
0: I know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's so like it's so like it's we put I mean we've said over the course The thing is like since it was all sort of highlighted when Death Proof came out it sort of like became more thing to notice the the feet thing but I think with this one he wasn't even trying to hide it it's just front and centre in like three quarters of the movie <laughs> Just bloody dirty hippie feet everywhere
0: <laughs> pretty much <laughs>
1: um and when she puts the glasses on in the cinema, I was like, "Oh my god, that's that's gotta be like for comedic effect." And I was like looking at Pich Chante, and she's there with the same glasses. It's like, "Oh my god, that's so good." But yeah, it's like she's such a new stylist at this point. The fact that she has to convince them at the at the theater of like who she is, and she's sort of like, oh, "I was in Valley of the Dolls," and it's like, "Oh, who were you in Valley of the Dolls?" She's all like, "I'm the one that went off to make the dirty movies," and <laughs> of course the guy remembers her. It's like if you're going to be a, a new actress in things, always have like a good death scene or have a memorable moment. Um, that's how people will remember you. <laughs> but um, I look, lo- it's just like simple things she does with the character, like when we see her at the Playboy Mansion, and or we see like her posing with her poster. It's just like lots of simple moments that she brings such life to this character, and there are moments. I mean, obviously that have been sort of like used to pad out a storyline when we're at the Playboy Mansion and we've got Steve McQueen there which felt like um, Damien Lewis just like saying I I just really want to be in your movie just give me any role so they've like cast a bunch of actors to play these bit roles in this Hollywood picture so he's Steve McQueen and he's saying about how she left uh, one guy to go off with Polanski and now the three of them like inseparable because he knows that Polanski's going to fuck up at some point and he's going to swoop in and get her back and yeah. I would say it's also funny to see the um say the Playboy Mansion and you only got like four Playboy bunnies. Compared to like every other time we've seen the Playboy Mansion and they're just everywhere. This time we got four Playboy bunnies and that was it. But
0: um
1: <laughs> I did forget to look up where they actually shot it on location, but um Sharon Tay actually does wear a lot of of uh, sorry, not Margaret Robbie wears a lot of Sharon Tate's actual jewelry that was uh, donated to the film by her sister Deborah. Um, and Deborah Tate actually gave her blessings to film. She had a in-depth conversation with Tarantino about the vision for the film and stuff, and the fact that it wasn't just the fact he was based based around the Manson Murders to an extent. It wasn't this sort of like exploitative thing about uh, the legacy of her sister's death and how she obviously passed. And it was being done in this very sort of respectful manner. Uh, even referring to Margot Robbie as being a dedicated craftsman um, and praising her researcher, Sham prior to meeting her. So it's kind of uh, nice in that respect, the fact that WTA uh, obviously gave her blessing to her performance. And, you know, I think it's always nice when you have the family on board, unlike Bruce Lee's family, who were rather pissed.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which seemed to be one of the things everyone was talking about prior to this. And... The Bruce Lee legacy is a very difficult one because his, the rights are sort of held between his wife and his daughter who sort of handle the estate. And there's a lot of fans who feel that they're very disrespectful with his legacy, the fact that they market his likeness off to, like, booze and uh, sunglasses and all this sort of, like, cash-in things. So there's a lot of negativity towards them and they were very unhappy with the way that... Um, he was portrayed in this film, even though I have to say for myself, it felt like a very like a scene that could have happened. I didn't think it was particularly tasteful, and I think Mike Mo is a phenomenal stand in for Bruce Lee um what did you also think of the Bruce Lee sequences then
0: I don't know, I thought it was really weird like i I think that if there was a problem that I had with it, that definitely would have been an issue that I had with it. Cause okay. I felt like it, something was off. Um, I don't think that the appearance wise had a problem. Cause I think that, uh, Mike Mo is fine. Yeah. As the character, he kind of fits into the Bruce Lee. It's just how the character is written. Um, feel so, I don't know. So off from, <laughs> he makes Bruce Lee seem like such a prick. <laughs> <laughs> And, and Bruce Lee isn't supposed to be that type of person, I think. Um, I think that Bruce Lee is not... Su- like, I think... Like, I don't know a lot about Bruce Lee. I bet. But I think that, in my, in my mind, it always feels like Bruce Lee isn't supposed to be this type of character, which is very arrogant. But, um, I don't know. Something just didn't feel right. And, I don't know, a part of me felt like it wasn't that necessary to have him in there. Like it didn't really matter yeah. whether he was in there or not. Like the scenes didn't make any sense other than the fact that it was for Cliff to throw Bruce Lee against a car, <laughs> and to have that whole encounter with um, Zoe Bell, who, yeah, who exactly. plays the who plays the <laughs> who plays the wife of uh, uh, of of of, of um, what's his name? I Forgot Kurt Russell's character. Yes, Kurt
1: Russell plays the wife of Kurt Russell, who's sort of like the stunt coordinator on on the, on the set there. Um, why can I not find any of my notes? This is really annoying to me. Yeah, Kurt Russell obviously plays Randy, um, and obviously Zoe Plow plays his uh, wife, Janet. Um, both fantastically cast, even though a bit of an odd pairing. But then again, I'm really happy to see Kurt Russell, and I'm always happy to see Zoe Bell. Um, Zoe Bell pushed for the role of Janet, and I think she's just absolutely phenomenal. I think she really provides the explanation point of that sequence. And they, when it came to, obviously, Cliff versus Bruce, the way I always read that scene is that Bruce, obviously, being known for his philosophies and, you know, the B-Water and stuff, and it's sort of like, if you've got a guy there who's obviously talking, giving his whole sort of, like, philosophical spiel, and he's going up against a blue-collar guy like Cliff, who's obviously going to... Not probably buy into all of Bruce's philosophies and stuff, and as you see, he's sort of like when he sort of like says, Oh, my hands are registered deadly weapons, and he's sort of like, You know, you kill anyone, you go to jail, it's called manslaughter. Um, and the fact that you know, these two would butt heads, obviously, in this case, it's sort of, and I think the fact that because Bruce essentially comes off on the losing end, I think that upset. A lot of people is like, "Oh no, Bruce Lee would never lose at all." Even though Bruce had many losses documented throughout his life, the fact that when you look at how this fight is playing out, obviously the first time he jumps up and he kicks him, and obviously Cliff is there as this experienced sort of like street fighting guy would be like, "Yeah, he's going to do that again." So I'm just going to throw him into the car when he tries this shit again on me. And I think it just again that applies the perfect punchline when we see uh see Janet come out and she's not first of all she's angry at the fact that Cliff's picking a fight with like one of the stars of the Green Hornet. Um but then again she's more pissed about her car and it's like, what the fuck happened to my car? <laughs> uh, and I just remember that just having such a big laugh in the cinema when that happened so <laughs> But Kurt Russell also turns up as later as the narrator which just made me want to hear Kurt Russell narrate everything. I think he's now him, Samuel Jackson, uh Werner Herzog, they're just people who are just very good at narrating things and it's good to know that when Kurt Russell like decides to tire of like being doing the physical acting side of things, he can just like, you know, slip into the more comfy role just narrating things. As to what, I don't know, but <laughs> but it'd be nice to see him narrate more things. Absolutely. The line where with Rick Dalton's always where um Cliff says to him, You're fucking Rick Dalton. That's just a line that was said to Brad Pitt by when he was like starting out and he was all like a struggling young starlet. And someone said to him, he was like, You're fucking Brad Pitt. And he just like outlived that line into this film. And I think it's uh, it, it's so great when it comes back to like when Rick's struggling to do his lines and he's there beating himself up in his trailer in just a, another phenomenal sequence. Where just like to show us how far Leonardo has come as an actor is like do you think that the kid in Titanic would be able to do the performance he's doing here?
0: Well, obviously no. I mean you know, back then it was uh you know, when when he when Leonardo first started, there was a whole different story about who he was and I mean, even through the years and the years that followed, he he his roles were were pretty, I guess, fixed to fixed to a certain type of character. Until he eventually, you know, got casted into something a little bit you know, a little bit more sophisticated, right, along the way?
1: Yeah, I think it was Scorsese picking him up as one of his his guys that really pushed DiCaprio to that new level. It's the same way that Brad Pitt when he got picked up by Fincher, it marked that evolution in their career. You can see a real marked difference in how their they act and how they, the performances that they're giving, and I think by DiCaprio being taken under the wing of like a director like Scorsese it sort of like, really sort of drew out that talent he'd always had, because we've seen it in his early films before he became the pretty young thing of Titanic and the beach and and whatnot when he was doing things like Basketball Diaries and This Boy's Life, the raw talent was always there but he was just always being marketed uh, not to his strengths and uh, now obviously he once you they have that breakout then other directors are all like yeah we can cast him in this role." he's no longer just like the pretty boy that we you know use as a marketing tool to bring people in to see films so um so it was fun to see obviously when brad pitt says you know you're rick fucking dalton to, uh that line that was given to him just abliving it in here and it just perfectly like plays in like so many of these moments throughout like that we see like Setting up to have things like when we see the inside of his shed and we see the flamethrower there, when we see um, Cliff, you know, feeding his dog and how well trained he's got that dog, which obviously comes into play at the the end as well. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of stuff that when you rewatch this film, and you notice all the stuff that Tarantino's setting up for, like. The final act, he's like constantly setting things up in, in the background and stuff has always been there. He's not going to be like one of those directors who's just like, Yeah, the flamethrower was magically there all along. <laughs> um, but onto the dirty hippies that are obviously living <laughs> up on the Manson, uh, up on the ranch of the Manson. Um, another chance as well to see Bruce Dern as the owner of Spa Ranch. Yeah. Um, it's kind of nice, to, I, as I said, now I know who boost Dan is, it's kind of like good to know who he is now because I can pinpoint him, but yeah, there's a as we're obviously introduced to you know, the the hippies uh, because of um, Cliff giving one of them a lift up to the ranch, in a rather uncomfortable scene, I have to say
0: <laughs>
1: it's, it's with uh, Margaret Pussy pussycat i don't know this i think there's just too much of an age gap there i don't know if it, they thought this was supposed to be sex or not i just thought it was kind of creepy i
0: i don't know i mean because i don't know how old the girl is uh when she filmed this obviously she, i'm like
1: she is born 94 or so oh, so it's like a 30, 20, 30 year probably 20 30 year yeah yeah because brad pitt's a lot older than we we assume he is yeah. Because uh, he looks after himself in the way that you know Hollywood types can, because they don't have <laughs> <laughs> and the burdens of day-to-day life crashing down on them. And I love as well the fact that isn't it nice that we see Brad Pitt with his shirt off again when he's fixing the antennae?
0: <laughs> well, I think I think you know it, it really it's really just um, giving you kind of like that opportunity to see that Brad Pitt is actually still really in shape. <laughs> You never you never you never so. get rid of that sort of thing, right? But I mean, it is different because in, in some ways if you think about it, when you watch a Tarantino movie, you watch a lot of like scantily dressed ladies a lot, but you might not watch so many like it's more um sex up for the ladies than it is for the men. So mm. <laughs> most men in Tarantino movies almost feel like brutes at times.
1: It's true. He is but as I said, he's sort of like He's very much reminded me of like um, that sort of Clint Eastwood, Charles Bronson sort of like. He's all sort of like, "Oh, if I'm gonna have like a have like the the sexy shirtless guy, he's gonna be like a Bronson sort of shirtless sexy guy." And you see that in The fact that like he puts the tool belt on and he's got his holder for his beer and stuff. Yeah. And we have that wonderful moment. Where he's on the roof. where He's like flashing back to. He's like, "How did I get here?" And he's all sort of like, "Huh? Oh, maybe it was my fault." <laughs> I do love the little, the flashbacks. I mean, obviously, it's more coherent than like the early films. Tarantino was obviously playing around with the structure and you know giving us the end at the beginning and whatnot. So it's fun that um, he still plays around with the structure of, of and, the, and the timings of his, his film. Like the fact we have flashbacks and we have flashbacks within flashbacks and stuff, and somehow it all remains coherent. Um, and I'm actually looking forward to actually rereading the book. I want to, I've got the book um on my Kindle. And it actually goes into a lot more of, like, the background of, like, Cliff and the, the Manson family up in the hills and stuff. So there's a lot of stuff that uh, we see in the film that's actually flashed out even more in the book. So I'm looking forward to rereading that now I've watched this film and got it fresh in my mind again, so. Okay. Because we also find out what happened to his wife. Because <laughs> up in the air, did he kill his wife or not? I mean, what did you think?
0: Well, it definitely feels like maybe he did. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
1: um but yeah with the you know the manson family up in the the hills um what did you think of the squirrel roger sequence because i thought it was like so insanely tense like there's so many moments of that where it just thinks like oh my god this is really gonna go south real quick
0: yeah absolutely i mean it really felt like that the the scene itself was structured so that it would feel like, oh, well, because there's so many of them and just one of him. That the moment he steps into this, and as you see, like, kind of the friction and the tension in the conversation, you kind of start seeing that something bad might happen, obviously. But we also know through the film that Cliff can more than enough take care of himself. And it's not going to be... a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of people who are staring at him weird. That's going to that's going to change that.
1: Yeah, and um, obviously this is another bit of real life history making its way into the Tarantino um, film, and it's. When it comes to, like, obviously with Sparrow with Ranch, where they used to shoot all these, these westerns, um, there's a scene where we see in the background there's a, a ranch hand heading some horses, and that's actually supposed to be um, Donald Shorty Shear, who was one of the, the sort of ranch land, uh, hand on the that um, George Spa had, had, had hired. And he had warned him about, you know, the Manson family and felt that they these hippies were dangerous and at one point he'd been like killed and dismembered around the ranch and it's th- said that uh, the killer that uh, that killed him was uh, Steve Clem Grogan, who's the hippie that we see being beat up because he, tries to, he uh, slashes um, Cliff's tire. So again, if Cliff had been around, then um, Steve uh, Clem would have been beaten up by him, <laughs> according to Tarantino, so... But no, that whole sequence where you obviously see see George and obviously here played by Bruce Dern. This is a role that was uh, supposed to have been played by originally um, e. cast with Bert Reynolds in the role, but unfortunately he died before they were able to complete filming. So Tarantino likes to brag that he's got the final footage of Brute uh, Bert Reynolds acting on the film because he showed a bunch of uh, test footage with him in the in the Bruce Dern role. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, he passed away before they were able to complete the film, so Sadly, we never got to see uh, him in that role But I think Bruce Dern does a, an interesting role, even though I wasn't particularly sure what was supposed to be going on with his character It's one—it's a great scene, obviously, setting up and you obviously get the idea of who some of these players are within the Manson family, you know, like Tex and Squeaky uh, So when they obviously turn up later, it's not like, oh, who are these random people turning up? You get an idea of who these people are and why they would be uh, obviously doing doing what they're doing, but as we obviously get towards the end of the film and obviously they're coming back from Italy where uh Rex's been obviously out there making these movies, he's got married, he's and a much older actor and I like the fact the fact that they aged him up, they ugly him up a bit as well. He's got really hairy arms for whatever reason. <laughs> Which I only noticed when I was like when he's making drinks, He's like, God, he's got hairy arms, he's like a gorilla so all of a sudden. <laughs> As um we obviously build that wonderful sort of sequence at um sequence at the end where the ma Madison finally burst in on the wrong the wrong people and soon uh, find out why. Did you notice that when when Rick's um sorry, when Cliss feeding his dog uh, what the flavours of dog food were? Yes.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Rat flavour and raccoon flavour <laughs> <laughs> Just like shower <laughs> down, dog. Oh <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I love as well the fact that, you know, his whereas Rick's obviously living up in the Hollywood Hills and he's living on a trailer by the drive in. <laughs> um which is just an absolute shit hole of a place but yeah as i said i i think the whole the whole film i, re- I really enjoy it. i mean it's like as I say, it's close to three hours runtime but i just didn't feel it with this film unlike like zhang unchained or hateful weight um i was just fully invested in this this story and the way it's going it just moves at such a quick pace there's so many things to see and do and um and the performance is so engaging. i just, just had a really great time throughout with it
0: yeah, I mean, the, the movie itself is pretty entertaining. I think that as you piece everything together, I mean, I've never faulted Tarantino with um, with anything that, you know, w- with this sort of stuff, but with, like, his scripting and just how he tells his stories. But when my main, my main issue is just really you know, the run time a lot of times that doesn't hold up to the story that he's trying to tell. And um, this one, while it feels a little bit like it jumps everywhere, I think that once you get a context of what's going on and everything's really set up, it it really does flow well enough into each other then. And the performances and the characters are so engaging that um, somehow it feels a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. I mean <laughs> I have to say though I think one of my favorite characters was the was the little girl. <laughs> she was, <laughs> the oh, whole hi. interaction was just so fantastic.
1: Oh and she's like um Yeah, I know what you you're talking about just like when she's there they're talking about her book and um and he realizes that you know the <sighs> the the stud breaker in his book is essentially him. I mean, it's that realization, you know, he's yeah. he's not the the star he once was, and you actually feel for him. <laughs> but I think she is; she does give this really, really mature performance. um uh, that, we, that we see see from her? And I just, oh. it is really good. And when she like leans over to him, then just like that's the best acting I've ever seen. Yeah, exactly. It's like he's. It's like he's earned her respect, the respect of this small child, um, and the fact he's you know he's gone in as this like bit player. He's just there to play the villain of the week, and yet he's given this this performance this, like this scene stealing performance. He's just like pushed himself out there and like realized you know he can still do it, um, and especially when you see him like when he's doing the scene to start with, and he just like keeps screwing up his lines he can't remember anything and he he like goes and says you know if you don't do this i'm gonna go and blow your brains out <laughs> gonna go and spare my brains all over my pool um and just has his like prep talk to himself um and there's as i said there's so many simple bits for his character like when he's doing his lines and he's got him on his little tape recorder and stuff and how he spends his evenings like just drinking whiskey sours out by the pool and stuff and there's so many, like, little aspects to, to both their characters that just, like, really make them seem like more than just, like, characters in a Tarantino movie. They're just, like, they feel like they could actually be real people and this is, like, that somehow you're getting this sort of snapshot to the past, even though it's, you know, wildly um, fantastical in places. Although the... The painting of uh, of Rick on his garage is actually inspired by Levon Cliff who had um, one of his own paintings on his garage. Okay. Because, you know, just in case he forgot where he lives, I mean, he could just go, oh, there I am. I really I, I enjoyed it. I think it's 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 great and it it only, to only really sort of lets himself go a little wild with the, uh, the blood-soaked finale of it, which is just it's more. It's. It's. Um, it's violent, but at the same time, it pushes it into such a comedic lens at the end.
0: Right. Yeah. It is. It is. Um, yeah.
1: I think, obviously, being topped up by. <laughs> by um him flamethrowing a hippie in his pool. <laughs> Which I was, I was trying to think is sort of like. When I was looking at the Fire Suns, it's sort of like. I think that's the most people I've seen involved in, like, a full body burn sequence when he's, like, doing the uh, toasting the Nazis at the beginning and then I was like when he's like hits with a flamethrower in the pool it's all like oh I don't think I've ever seen someone in a pool get hit with a flamethrower either so
0: yeah,
1: quite a few firsts in that respect and then I wanted to go off and watch Don't Go Into the House um, which is just a really cool horror flick so <laughs> <laughs> about a guy who has this like middle room and just like brings women back to then burn them alive with a flamethrower <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, this obviously brings us to the end of uh, our Tarantino season. Uh, before we go, as always, we like to ask you know what's in the best film, what's been the one to burn, and what's our hidden gem? So, where do you want to start with the Tarantino filmography, Kim?
0: I don't know. We can start with the best, I guess. Okay. What's your best?
1: Kill Bill Volume 1. Okay. <laughs> I had to say Kill Bill Volume 1. I had to think for a minute because I was like, it was in my favourite. Was this my favourite? And then I was like, no, it's Kill Bill Volume 1 because that's the one I've seen the most. And I, I mean, I saw that like four times in the cinema and I think it still totally stands up. Like all the bits, beats of it just are like so good. I mean, like the Sonny Chiba sections, the Gordon Liu sections, um like the fight with Gogo and the crazy 88 just throughout. I think it's just a a phenomenal movie. It's not just like a true to like Kung Fu movies, but also pop samurai movies. It just like, it's like all so many of my favorite things just like embodied by this one, one film. And I've, I think, yeah, why it might not be his most artistic vision. I think it's for myself. It was like, just like fanboy Nirvana seeing Kill Bill volume one. What about yourself?
0: Oh, uh, definitely, Inglorious Bastards.
1: <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh.
0: I mean, I haven't seen that one the most. That's because this was for the show. It was the first time that I watched it, but I can definitely see myself if any of the movies I'd, I would go back to watch Inglorious Bastards. Um, it was just so fun. It was just like you really didn't see the time go by, and everything was just so entertaining. Um, I think it was. It's. It's. It's just such a great addition to his filmography, you know, which to me was I have to say, pretty this was a rough season <laughs> this was a rough, rough okay. season for myself
1: So what was the worst then? If Because I mean, as I said, if this was such a rough season for yourself, I mean I I had issues with it just because I think that I didn't realize just how talked out on Tarantino we are It's so like, well what, what do we do that people haven't heard a hundred times before so I think that was the the, the difficulty compared to like our other seasons where I think I'd, the directors aren't, especially when face like um, Paul Darius Anson, yeah, where it's like you're going back and you're reevaluating someone's work who has got a lot of depth to it and is more than just Resident Evil movies, or like even like with Del Toro and Sofia Coppola, there's there's the hidden gems there. I think, but um, yeah, this one was surprisingly uh, surprisingly tough. But um, yeah, where was the low point then of? of the season for you.
0: I have to say, though, it's really hard to decide at a low point. Um, Because, I mean, the main thing is, I think that in the end, because how long these films are, um, it all dials down to what movie I would not watch again. Um, Since a lot of them, like I said, was first-time watches. And... I had originally wanted to say Kill Bill Volume 2 but I thought about it a little bit more and the movie that I would never go watch again uh, would probably be Django Unchained uh, which puts it in my worst Um, I don't have like I I don't know that movie you know I I could rewatch it for Christoph Waltz Um, And that would be about the only reason why I'd rewatch it. Uh, Everything else was just so grating to watch. Like, I just felt so tired of the movie. Um, And I felt like there was no surprises. It was really one of Tarantino's, to me, in terms of script. It was just so predictable. It was like something he had already done before. Um, It gave me no surprises. And I felt like... It just didn't have that type of excitement. Um, sure, you know there was that big shootout at the you know at the end where it was kind of crazy, but I don't think it's still. I don't think it. Uh, I don't think that it. It really delivered uh, to me at least. I didn't think it was that fun to watch. I just thought it was so. Tiresome.
1: Yeah, I'm very much in through. the same boat. Even though for this particular viewing, I did actually enjoy it more than I've done previous uh, times. I think when Christoph Walsh leaves that film, that the film sort of struggles. And I'm not, as I've gone on record before saying, I'm not the biggest Jeremy Fox fan, even though I think he did a very good job as playing Django. Um, you know, because obviously he can ride and do all the cowboy stuff and that, which is great. And to think that, you know, this is a role originally offered to Will Smith. I don't think that he would have had the rawness that Jeremy Fox obviously brought to that that role, but I think when it came, I'm not a huge again I'm not a huge yeah. western fan as well, so it had two detrimental facts going for it already but I think when Christoph Waltz sort of like leaves the film, it felt that it sort of loses its way um as it's sort of like oh we're gonna knock this character down and then we're gotta rebuild him back up again and that was just like not really in the place to sort of like felt like rebooking it. and plus we'd lost another key. Character at that point as well, when because uh, DiCaprio bows out at the same time. Um, but I think it's got a really underrated performance by Samuel yeah. Jackson in it for sure. I think he's off the rails, insane. <laughs> <So>
0: <laughs> hmm. When we did the when we did the show for Django and Chain, you know, like we had talked about Jamie Fox and we talked about Samuel Jackson. I don't think the performances was the problem. I just really had yeah. issue with like the whole execution and the whole like pacing. It's just not intriguing. Like it's not fun. It's not a fun time. You know, <laughs> like there were certain moments that were okay. Um, that was very Tarantino, mm. and it was it was okay. But yeah, I, I I guess it's just the western element probably because I'm not a big fan of westerns, and it was just really slow, and I just really didn't you know, I I just couldn't get into it and and that's that's just that's just like a you know it's obviously a personal thing so
1: okay and finally on to our hidden gem of the season which film do you think deserves a little more respect than the people tend to give it which is the most overlooked film in your opinion
0: I really don't know i'm struggling between Jackie Brown and Reservoir Dogs right now i okay. can't decide which one is more of a hidden gem
1: <laughs> For myself it was Jackie Brown yeah um, and I think it's because I got older. When I first watched it, I didn't really get it because I was, you know, a young punk-ass kid, like, in in school and stuff. So I didn't really get the the maturity of the uh, uh, the characters' relationships. And now, obviously, coming to it as an older viewer. And, I mean, obviously, I always appreciate the fact Pam in is it because Pam Green is never a bad time when you're having a movie. But coming back to it now and also being like a Robert Forrester fan as well um, it was sort of like oh this is just it was just, just really great even though it is essentially just one big convoluted bag swap by the end <laughs> I think that Robert Forrester and Pam Grier are just phenomenal in that film and uh, for myself I think it's it's worth going back and reevaluating. go back as a you know, if, you, if you like me a little older yeah. a little wiser well not so much wiser but, <laughs> um <laughs> But uh, go back in there, uh, check it out, and you may think, feel a bit different. And I think Darren has said, said before, it's sort of like the older audiences tend to really like Jackie Brown more, so.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think that, you know, obviously this is my first time watching Jackie Brown for the show. Um, and mm. to me, I think that in, in in certain ways of like how much people talk about it or what's compared to it, I think Reservoir Dogs definitely gets a lot more talk than Jackie Brown yeah. does. And for that, I think, hidden gem wise i'm definitely leaning more towards jackie brown in that sense um because it it was a really enjoyable movie um the whole concept of how you know there's kind of like a (laughs) double going down and all these characters and then the timeline kind of fits um in a funny way together type of thing um yeah there's a lot of things to really enjoy about it. And a lot of visually really cool moments. And, um, Pam Greer is fantastic. Uh, you know, I think that there, there's so much to love about it that I, I really feel like people don't talk about this movie enough, um... But I guess, you know, <laughs> in a world where Tarantino movies is about spraying blood like in Kill Bill and stuff like that and, like, yeah. a culture clash and alternate histories, Jackie Brown kind of falls into that little, like, <laughs> space where it feels like it doesn't really... Um, it's not really in the Tarantino that everybody knows, I guess.
1: Uh, no, there's no real sort of elements that really some. Sort of- made it into the pop culture, which, as you said already, when you think, like, retro Dogs, dogs, um, it's so ingrained. There's so many elements of, of uh, retro dogs in Pulp Fiction that are just, like, so constantly referenced in pop culture. Even, like, Kill Bill gets, like, referenced in, in popular culture and stuff. We see all like, these elements. It's all, like, when you see people, like, uh, dressed in, like, the suits, yeah. and they do, like... You, you hear, like, Steeler's Wheel, or you hear, like, a piece of the soundtrack, and it's all, like, your mindlessly goes to these these uh these films um but yeah i think as i said jackie brown is sort of like the thing i think it needs more a little more credit than 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 it deserves i think a lot of people sort of sleep on it and it's kind of a shame
0: yeah definitely agree with that
1: so yeah that's it another season done um thank you as always for listening if you haven't done already please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to listen to us you can follow us on facebook and twitter and instagram where we post things <laughs> <laughs> um and uh also check out our blog and moves and podcast wordpress.com especially on fridays where we post up our friday phone club where both myself and Kim po- Both pick a movie to highlight, sometimes the theme, sometimes it's not. Either way, it's a chance for us to highlight more of the movies that we love and adore. and think you should be checking out as well. But make sure you uh, stick around and uh, check out our After Hours, which will be coming up shortly. We've got some interesting films lined up for our After Hours uh, portion, including our Shark Week episodes. And... But yeah, make sure you uh, definitely stick around and uh, check it out after our episode, which will be coming up in the next coming weeks. And uh, look out for our new season coming very soon, as we got something very special planned for it. But uh, we're not going to give that away just yet. So, but uh, thank you, our listeners, as always, and uh, thank you for jo- thank you to my co-host Kim. And we will see you once again here in the booth for another round of movies and tea. But until then, good night. <music> you stop from to cry on the
0: you all the loving you can, and I can, Cause I, I'm the son, I'm the son, son, I'm the son, son, I'm the son, son, son of a You can't get it I'm the son of a lover